Hello, welcome dear listeners all, uh, vagaries of the internet allowing, we're going to have another nice chat with someone cool, funky and exciting from the world that is food and how we consider it. And I'm looking forward to having a chat with him in just a moment. But in the meantime, let's do the boring rigmarole. Please do remember to download the episode that you're listening to if you can. That helps make it easier for us to be found by other people like you who might be interested. If you're not interested and you've merely passed out on your phone and randomly started playing this podcast, let's just get to the end anyway. Who knows? It might in some subliminal way do you good. Now, Today's exciting guest, they're always exciting, remember, or at least I think they are, is a chap named Nick Jefferson, who has recently founded a company called Wild Market, um, who are doing various things about purveying goods uh, from wild, sustainable harvests via the magical medium of the internet. And um, I'm sure he can tell us about it much better than I can. Nick Jefferson, are you there? I am here, receiving you loud and clear, Tim. Well Thank done, Nick. Having me. Oh, no. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Very welcome. I think... We need to give everyone a bit of a heads up, spoiler alert. I do actually know Nick, or, or vaguely. I mean, we've become reacquainted of late. Um, but Nick, was a, you were a grown-up at school while I was a youngster. Yeah, and what's, what's kind of even worse than that, Tim, is that in the interim, in those many years where we kind of hadn't spoken, not for any reason, I hasten to add, we just hadn't spoken, you became a hero of mine. And I mean that genuinely. And as one of the bigger kids, that's a weird thing to say, but I mean it. Oh, well, you know, I, do you know what? I'm going to take it. I was very uncertain at school. I was quite nervous. So if that's the case and it's all panned out well, let that, let that be a lesson to future nervous kids at school. Sometimes the big guys, okay, the guys that are older than you, the girls that are older than you, one day they could end up thinking that you're the one. It's true. That? This is it's amazing. True. We've delved off into some weird psychological support group here. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mind that. And, and there's nothing weird about psychological support groups. Let's be clear. Okay, Nick, back on track. We used to know each other at school very, very, um, very vaguely because we were in different years. However, you recently got back in touch via the podcast, in fact, to tell me about your exciting new project. So should we leap in there or should we have a bit of background? How did you get to this exciting new project? Uh, personal frustration, to be completely honest with you. Um, I, I live in London now. I lived in London um, until 2014. And then my missus and our two kids went to live in Spain for six years. And we had a ball. And we went right down the food rabbit hole there. We, we thought we ate well when, when we lived in London before, but then we realized. <laughs> um, you know, because in southern Spain, of course, where we were, people still had a connection with the land and connection with the seas. Um, and I got very interested in gut health for a whole bunch of different reasons. Uh, and then we came back to London and I found it deeply frustrating that I couldn't get hold of actually the same shellfish and fish I'd been buying in Spain uh, here, back here in the UK. You know, it was easier for me to buy Scottish langoustine, fresh Scottish langoustine in Andalusia than it was coming back here to London. And uh, I realized something was completely broken with the food system. Uh, I know that's a, a familiar topic uh, on your podcast. Um, and so after a fair bit of fetching and uh, moaning and the like, uh, in fact, it was my missus who said to me, well, look, you're just going to have to do something about this. So, so that's really how Wild was born. And, and in essence, we're a marketplace. We're Airbnb for producers of artisanal British food to sell direct to consumers. Wow, what a great introduction. I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, you're right. I mean, you know, it, it is broken. There's no doubt about that. And I, I don't think um, 
I think your point about the culture is quite important. Now, I recently had Anisha Mystery on the on the podcast who has her own podcast. It was a bit of a podcast wormhole. Um, and she lives in Spain on the Costa Tropical. And mm. she was talking about exactly these things. Uh, and it was very, very interesting for me because she was bringing up the point of culture. And I and that sort of got gets me to, to my way of looking at this, which is, you know, Britain doesn't not have a food culture, but it changed very rapidly post-war or post-Second World War, there was a lot of problems. And I think mm. some interest was lost. Um, you know, more important things perhaps than diet took over or more immediately important things than diet took over. Uh, a lot of people missing, a lot of the people who knew how to catch these foods gone. And as those markets came back, they were more uh, more popular to, to be exported and the, the Brits had lost the taste for them perhaps or, or thought they had. New markets have been built in Europe and the product was no longer available here, despite the fact it's available over there and caught here. So it's, it's a fascinating one. I don't think anyone's really gone out of their way to break it. I think it just something just happened and now it's broken in the, the established marketplaces for those things. The langoustine, if you want, is a good example that we took, is now in Europe, not here in the UK. And it's very difficult once you get a machine headed in one direction to change gear and turn it around again. So um, it'll be fascinating to see how you're, how you're doing that and, and indeed what the benefits of that are. So I'm very excited to find out more. Um, so it's a basic platform. We go, you know, I've actually, I've signed up just to see what it was all about. And I get an email on a Wednesday to remind me that the market's open. So it is a bit like going to a market in that sense, in terms of you know, it's not a marketplace that we're used to in the virtual world where everything's available 24-7 at the click of a button. You have to go to the market and it's worth getting there early? Yeah, very much. I mean, it, it is run just like a real market. So, you know, often produce will sell out at a certain point. As you say, <clears throat> a lot of what we sell is highly seasonal um, and so it won't always be there. The weather, um, as you will know, living up in the northeast of Scotland, has a very big impact on whether or not food's available. But it's real food pr produced by small-scale producers from, you know, fresh fish to shellfish to venison. Maybe we'll talk about that in, in, in some more detail. Uh, cheese, kimchi, uh, krauts, uh, slow vinegar, a whole kind of plethora of, of, of people doing kind of really, really amazing things with food. I've been so inspired as I've kind of met these folk over the last year or so. Um, and this is really just a platform for them to sell direct, as I say, to, to people who care about this. Stuff. And I would say to him, I agree with everything you said about food culture in this country. And yet the tide is turning. I mean, I think it's turning far out at sea, hasn't yet kind of hit the, uh, hit, hit the beaches yet, but the tide is turning. My big concern when I set this business up was that I was setting up a business for myself right? mm -hmm. with yeah. a customer base of one. Yes. Um, it's now very, very clear to me with thousands of uh, subscribers that there is a market for um, honestly produced food and a move away from the, uh, the cynicism of the supermarkets and, 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 and big food, if we can put it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Hooray for that. I, I, I have been uh, guilty in the past of feeling like I'm shouting into an echo chamber uh, and it has been quite a long journey, I guess, for me. Uh, but looking back over the last 15, 20 years, you can now look and, and see that, yeah, stuff is changing. I mean, it's a bit like trying to do a handbrake turn in the Ark Royal. But, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're definitely making momentum and different challenges come up and things happen. But more and more people are refusing to uh, to eat uh, in a way that's 
not right for them, uh, for the environment and for their local community. And, uh, and that's only going to grow. It's really exciting time, actually. I feel I, I'm not really an old boy in this area of thinking. There are lots of people around who've been doing it a lot longer and I'm sure a lot better and a lot more scientifically than I have for a long while. But despite that, that sort of um, little bit of historical back view is really helpful and, and it's really encouraging to see things like your business happening. Um, well, 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 just while we're, while we're kind of swapping compliments, I really feel very strongly that your podcast is bringing together people who see the world through a similar lens. And in fact, it was your episode with Anisha uh, that led me to, to reconnect with you and made me feel a lot less uh, alone myself. And that really is also what we're trying to do at Wild, right, is, is give producers a platform to reach consumers who, who, who value what they do and how they do it. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant. Well, look, I'll take the compliment. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to point out to all the regular listeners and new listeners, Nick hasn't paid me vast sums of money to come on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't paid him to be nice to me. <laughs> okay. Um, before we dive into the main part of the show where you get to change three things about the world of food and we get to discuss them, and that's the central ethos of the Madam's Cast for anyone who's recently joined us, um, Scottish miso uh hold on tell me more how do i get that uh i mean i've got to buy it through you that's great i can do that but tell me more about this guy i want to hear about this guy ah uh, so this is jono jono is uh fabulous uh, like yourself um well he has an english accent i'm not sure if he's actually english or scottish uh but he now uh lives back up in scotland and he is making miso with all sorts of extraordinary kind of British grains. So um, I'm, I'm doing this podcast from my kitchen. I'm actually just looking at my fermentation station and uh, I, I make a lot of my stuff. I don't make my own miso. I've got a jar of Jono's badger bean uh, miso that he's made from some kind of old grains, beans called badger beans, which I have to say I hadn't come across before. But oh. yeah, what a, what a legend. He's getting the. He must be getting those from Hodmadods, uh, Josiah down at Hodmadods, which I think is. Mm, I'm going to say Norfolk, but it might be Lincolnshire, and they're Quite bringing probably. back all the British, uh, all the British pulses. They're amazing. They've been at it for a few years, and they did great stuff. Okay, um, I, I, I could of course be completely wrong, Jono. If you want to write in and tell me I'm being an idiot, and lots of people grow black badger beans these days, feel free. I, I love being updated. There's nothing worse than uh, realizing you're living in the past. Um, okay. Uh, I, I love me so, and to find out that someone's making some in Scotland uh, is is absolutely brilliant. So I'll be getting on the case for that and using it on some projects very, very soon. Okay, Nick, are you ready to step into a world more malleable, where by merely wishing it, you can improve the world of food? I cannot wait, genuinely. Okay, okay um, we haven't got any fancy sound effects, so just crack on, mate. What's the first thing you'd like to change about the world of food? I want to end the cynical hegemony of big food in the supermarkets and their long, inefficient supply chains, chock full of intermediaries carting stuff up and down the country in vast kind of faceless warehouses. just want to, I want to break that. Blimey. <laughs> you don't mince your words, do you? That's, um, that's an exciting ambition. Um, so for those, uh, those people maybe... Uh, listening or dipping their toe in the Madam's cast or, you know, maybe this is their first episode. Can you just give us a little bit more background on that? I mean, in my head, uh, let's say as a newbie to the world, a, uh, a, a supermarket goes to a farmer, buys some tomatoes, brings them to the supermarket, sells them to the general public. Is that not the case? Sadly not, Tim. Uh, no. Uh, and I've only started to peel this particular rotten onion myself in the last year or so. But once you kind of look at where 
food comes from, how it's produced, according to what sort of standards you realize that, yeah, I used the word cynical deliberately there. Um, supermarkets aren't all bad all of the time, but the fact that they basically control food in this country is not good, just from a competitive standpoint, apart from anything else. So if they don't de facto own most of the farm, if they don't, sorry, legally own most of the farms, de facto, they, they kind of do. They, they, they say jump and the farmers who work and say how high. And often it's higher and higher and higher for lower and lower uh, prices. Uh, and it's not sustainable. I mean, there's a lot of greenwashing and there's a lot of chat about sustainability, but it's not sustainable in, in, in any respect, environmentally, financially, whatever. It's, it's bad juju and we need to break that cycle. Yeah, I mean, from my own perspective, they've been very, very good at lowering the bar to the absolute minimum level. And then when they've been forced to raise it, pointing out how much more sustainable they are than they used to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> which, is, which is one way of spinning the apple, right? Um, which I appreciate. Okay, anyone out there uh, more interested or interested in uh, finding out more about supermarkets and the way that they work and interact with the potentially um, damage beyond all repair food system in the United Kingdom and worldwide, if you like, um, start with a book by Joanna Blythman called Shopped. That's a great place to start. It's quite an old book now, um, but it'll open your eyes and get you into the framework. Perhaps it will make Nick's um, desire to improve the way supermarkets work or indeed end their supremacy. Uh, it might might make that a bit more understandable. So it's, it's, a, it's a great book, that Tim. And I would just say by way of example, just to yeah. kind of bring it back. We were talking about Langustine earlier. I invite your listeners to go to any of the local supermarkets and try and find native British prawns or langoustines. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, but we are surrounded with the world's best prawns in the shape of the Dublin Bay prawns and, and, and native English prawns. But we are importing prawns from Madagascar, from Vietnam, from Honduras. Those aren't bad places. They're not bad people. They're all working hard. But that makes no sense whatsoever. But that is a, a, a micro example of what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And then you spin that on and those most of those prawns will be tropically farmed prawns mm. potentially where there ought to be mangroves going probably fed on fish that are um, being being dynamited off the reefs so it's not it's not an ideal thing um the whole tiger prawn revelation was not necessarily the dream it or hoped it was going to be um, but there we go uh, i think that's a really great example uh that you've given us there there nick and, and I, what i always find with the supermarkets is the answer they always give us back is we're just doing our best to help the beleaguered wallet of the down at heel British consumer. And I always think, oh no, you're right. I'm terribly sorry. You're just trying to help feed people uh, for reasonable money. And that's it. As a service provider, that's your only MO and I apologize. And then I think, no, hang on a minute. You're in this to make a profit and control the market. And a previous, a long time ago, I had a, a, a former charity CEO from the Country Food Trust on the podcast, a guy called Tim Woodward. And he had a really novel idea which I've mentioned to a couple of people as we've gone along, that would be that you could take supermarkets and make them non-profit. And, mm. and that way, not only would they be incredible for their employees and become forces for good within the food marketplace and you know support farming with long-term contracts and sustainability uh, implications and all of that stuff. Um, but you would then also have the ability to say, okay, well, because we're not for profit, we can feed a certain amount of people from this marketplace for nothing and do that. 
you know, and, and I, I have a vision of sort of, you know, a modern Tesco's of the future owned by um, by well-meaning individuals with a board of directors full of, um, oh, it's probably you and me, and we're, we're cooking lunch for 100 people every day as well as running a shop. I mean, why, why, why wouldn't we do that? But that's my halcyon view. Um, I've stolen it from Tim Woodward, and I think it's an interesting angle to explore. Right. Um, have you got anything else for me? Oh, have you got another example of supermarket madness? I think like one more would be great before we move on. Well, I, I think the fact that people are, uh, are, are pushed kind of intensively raised chickens um, and, and, and pigs and, and cattle, when we are surrounded by um, the, this extraordinary kind of natural resource in the shape of, of wild deer, venison, there's over too many of them roaming around the country, causing a big problem as anyone with a bit of land knows, not just for landowners, but for other animals like dormice, for example. They live in the brambles that deer um, kind of eat. Um, we have uh, so many of them, and yet we're, we're eating intensively raised animals who are having miserable lives, filled full of weird animal feeds and antibiotics. It's, it's madness, Tim, real madness. Mm, yeah. Yeah, agree. Um, with that doorbell in the background, was that the chief solicitor of the supermarket industry? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Don't joke. Yeah, good joke. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, it's difficult for me to sort of try and argue against what you're saying. I, I, I'm with you a lot of the way. I mean, supermarkets are here to stay. Uh, and, you know, one thing that they are really good at is reacting to customers. So if you get enough of a fuss going, they will change their ways. Um, they kind of have to because they're all fighting for market share and that's becoming more and more important, obviously, as they go along. So I think it is worth remembering that although they're set in their ways and that they, they do a lot of bad things, you can make them better by voting mm. with your pound and telling other people to vote with theirs as well. So it, it, it can change. Okay, all right. Um, point number one, beautifully handled, very exciting. I, I, I mean... Yeah, uh, who wouldn't want to live in a world with, without um, without the supremacy of the current format of supermarket in it? I mean, I'm, I'm totally with you. The, the the bizarre idea for me, I mean, it's almost Wellsian that, that you can walk into a room that is the size of four sports halls in a reasonably sized school, stacked floor to ceiling with products from all over the planet, any day of the week you like, and buy most of them for under a fiver <laughs> is bizarre and must in some way be a chimera. It can't be real. It can't be sustainable and it can't in any way be a good thing. Um, it's, it's a dream we've been sold and turned out to be a lie. There we go. I'll leave it there. Um, <clears throat> Nick, you sent me off on a wormhole there. I wasn't expecting supermarkets to come up first. Um, um, we, we are, how long are we going to have to wait before we see wild market branded stuff in Tesco's? <laughs> I think some time, frankly. <laughs> okay, you're not going to sell out and become a label. That's good news. Um, what's your second thing about the world of food that simply has to be changed? I would like, uh, and this is going to sound niche, but I would like vac packaging that is compostable and fit for purpose. So um, when we set Wild Up, it was very important to me that the boxes that folk get and the market's open, as you said, on a Wednesday, and we deliver on a Friday uh, with all the goodies inside one cardboard box. Everything inside is recyclable. 
down to our um, ice packs, which are frozen uh, cardboard water bottles. Um, I was ordering a lot of food online during lockdown and getting fed up with all these plastic ice packs that were coming. Yeah. So that was important to me. So everything inside the boxes is edible, recyclable, or compostable, sometimes all three. But uh, the exception to that is the plastic back packaging that our producers use. We try very, very hard to find genuinely compostable um that packaging that worked and whilst there is some out there in the marketplace we we just found that it wasn't fit for purpose so i hope that i'm wrong and i hope one of your listeners is going to get in touch and say we've got the solution um if so please send it my way but at the moment that's the the the, the one kind of uh, chink in the armor i would say for us yeah uh, i agree actually it's it's um you're right it is niche but it's definitely it's niche in my world too i'm i'm, I'm feeling that same pain I have a vacuum packer because I collect some of my own venison from the wild. I, I put my mm. hands up. I'm a, I'm a hunter. Uh, and I also batch cook a lot of stuff and plastic tubs. They're not great. Once they've been frozen a few times, they become brittle. And now it's just sort of bored of supporting that kind of falsehood of these were going to last forever. Stainless steel tubs. Great, but they go out of shape in the freezer. So they're not great for freezing in and you can't exclude the air from them. Um, so I'm sort of in this quandary really of what to do and I realize that's definitely a first world problem um but like you was getting fed up with the mounting plastic now I wash out the backpack bags that we use at home and any that come to the house for deliveries or whatever and um, wash them out dry them put them in the plastic recycling and this is where I feel like I'm winning because I take them to Tesco's <laughs> <laughs> and I put them in their plastic recycling bags there and I go nah my evil uh, my way of getting back at them um, they probably then just drive off and put it in landfill I don't know uh, and any uh, solicitors for Tesco's uh, listening I'm sure you don't I'm sure it's 100% recycled that was just a gag um, I like you have been on the hunt for a biodegradable vacuum packing bag because there, there's no way that vac packing is going away it's incredibly mm. versatile way lightweight way of storing food protecting it from the environment, keeping it fresh, putting it in the freezer, posting it around, whatever it is you're going to do with it, VAT packs are great. Someone can someone can do this. Surely someone can do this. There's guys making biodegradable plastics, waxes to spray on paper coffee cups so they can be degraded. So surely, mm -hmm. surely there has to be an option out there for VAT packing bags. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. Hopefully um, the world will come up with that one. Uh, <clears throat> it would be nice to um, to have everything in glass jars or whatever, but it doesn't doesn't actually work. Things get broken, and obviously um, glass is heavy, and you have to take into account when you're sending stuff around the carbon footprint of the e energy used to move it, don't you? I mean, mm -hmm. it's not as straightforward as saying let's get rid of the plastic. And at the moment, I have come back to the point that devil as it is, it's the smallest devil I know that's practical, effective, and sensible is to keep using the vacuum pack bags and recycle them until until there's a better option um uh, wow god i had no idea that you were going to be sharing so many of my dreams <laughs> flattering flattering <laughs> okay excellent um wow we're flying through these nick we really are um what's the i've got a feeling that this is going to be a biggie as well what's the third thing uh, about this world of food in which we inhabit that you'd like to change? I want to teach kids to cook properly. We teach them all sorts of stuff. We teach them there are 72 genders and all sorts of things. We don't teach them how to make soup, Tim. Yeah, that's a biggie. 
that is a biggie and it came up in in a very recent episode with um alison swan ferrante from the i heard it it's a great episode okay great and it's come up again and again and again and again and actually she put me on to someone i'm rifling through my notes i'm not sure i'm gonna be able to find them in time uh who's oh no nicole pisani who Mm. has done a project called chefs in schools and i am definitely gonna get on her case and talk to her because i would love to know what's happening with that in scotland at the moment there's a lot of chat over a potential u-turn on a promise from the scottish government to provide free school meals for all children What's it? What's the state down south? What happens in England? Who gets a free school meal, and is it worth having? Uh, that's a good question. So my kids are at our local state school, uh, where I think seventy percent odd uh, are getting free school meals, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think the, the provision is very good. But it depends so much on the school. Uh, I'm more interested. I mean, I, I obviously I want kids to be fed. I'm very much with Marcus Rashford on that, but I want them to be able to feed themselves after they've left school. Yeah. And that's what really worries me is that the basic kind of cooking skills just just aren't there. And so, you know, if there's one skill that all of us need, it's to, it's to feed ourselves, right? So we should be prioritizing that uh, as a matter of public policy, I believe. Is that a job for schools? Uh, good question. I argue it's parents, but it's not happening at the moment. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's leave it. Let's let's frame it like that. Kids need to learn to cook. Um yeah, I completely agree. I, I mean, I have a sort of um, ideal worldview whereby each school has is, is self-sufficient or close to self-sufficient in producing its own food around its curriculum, whilst it's mm. doing science and nature and teaching people about, um, you know, where their food comes from. They're actually growing it and producing it and, and taking stuff that's farmed locally. But that requires someone of great skill um, and a useful amount of equipment. Uh, to produce the food then for the school from that and uh, but that's not to say that you couldn't use the students as part of the workforce so um, they could be learning part of their social skills and part of their um, personal development as along with their science and their uh, and their food technology would be amazing Uh, and it is it is interesting how it changes from one school to the next and in fact how um, how different parents tackle it people have asked me in the past how I've got my children interested in food and my kids are not, let's be clear, right? They're, <laughs> they're not some kind of perfect uh, you know, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, middle-class hippie kids who, you know, weave their own tofu. That is definitely not the case, but um, you know, they are interested in what's happening in the kitchen. Like most kids are because they're hungry, greedy, interested in what's going to be for supper. Will they like it? Won't they like it? Is it a treat? Is it something vegetable? You know, what, what's happening they've got the same um interests as most kids but it's really interesting for me that people who cook families in which food is important the kids just absorb that and they don't eat everything like no other child eats everything but they'll try everything and they'll have a vague understanding Mm. how they eat it and you know we keep chickens not everyone can do that but we keep chickens and that's a really great thing but just something as simple as growing a bit of cress on a flannel which i remember doing as a child um can really just begin that kind of ah okay that natural uh you know learn by default attitude that children have until their brains get rewired as teenagers and they become goths Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I I i would obviously agree with all of that tim and i would go a little bit further and say we need to teach them not 
to not not just short order food, right? So so yes, it would be good if they could all kind of cook themselves something quickly in the evenings, but we also need to teach them the importance of, of, of slow cooking as well, putting a stew on in the morning so that you've got something nutritious and delicious to come home to at the end of a hard day. That isn't hard, but you, you know, there are certain kind of skills that one needs in order to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Oh, wonder walls. Okay, so what else, what else can we teach them? What else? Stock. Everyone should be making stock. So good for you, brimming with amino acids. Um, everyone should be should be drinking it to support their immune system, fending off the colds and coughs and all the rest of it in the winter. Um, it's easy as pie to make, easier than pie, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> My pies are never very good. <laughs> okay, all right, well, let's pause this. Let's have a quick pie clinic. What's the problem with your pies, Nick? Uh, soggy bottoms, Tim. Oh, well, that is unfortunate. That is unfortunate. What are we talking, hot water crust, short water crust, cold water crust? What fat are you using? What percentage ratio? How hot's the oven? What sort of baking dish are you using? Come on, give me some more details. I can make your pies better. Uh, all of the above is, is is failing me at the moment on the pies. Okay, okay. Uh, well, uh, I think a baking vessel is very important and often underlooked, as well as making sure that the oven is properly preheated before before the pie goes in. And I would normally always bake a pie at the bottom of the oven to start with, because you can always move it up the top to brown the top. But if it goes brown on the top and the mixture's all bubbling out the sides, you automatically assume it's cooked on the bottom. And as you have found, uh... yourself, as you've found yourself, that's often not the case. Making sure the filling's not too watery is another good option. And if you really can't get a, a nicely cooked bottom to the pie, it's a bit of a faff. But once you put the bottom in the pie, egg wash that, pop the pie dish in the oven just for 10 minutes to set the pastry on the bottom and get a, a waterproof layer of egg wash on the top of it. Then fill the pie and put the lid on. That's a real cheats way round, but it would work. And of course, I'd encourage you to listen to Sarah Pettigrew's episode of the Madam's Cast back in the day um, from uh, Bray Cottage Pies. Um, she does the most amazing uh, pies in the world. So if you can't make your own, maybe you should just buy them from Sarah. That's not a bad thought. I told you you're my hero. I'm, I'm going to try that, putting it on the on the bottom. Thank you. Okay, see how you get on. Um, I will immediately now be buried under a weight of emails telling me that that's terrible pie advice. Uh, and that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I don't know my upper crust from my lower crust, but there we go. Um, <laughs> I'm, busy, I'm busy treading on hallowed ground trying to reinvent the Scotch pie and take it back to the, the beautiful mutton-filled hot water crust pastry that it used to be rather than mutton there's 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 a meat you know what we need some more of that uh, on our supermarket shelves that's for sure well we do we do and and i mean some of it is there but it's in the um it's in the ready meal aisles in the curries and uh, mm. we need to take it away from there well not necessarily take it away from there although um although i've never had a bought a curry uh, from a supermarket that i've enjoyed um mm. you know like everything, you know, we've forgotten a little bit how to eat around the cycle of livestock. And people complain about, you know, uh, these days there's a lot of misinformation out there about how bad for the planet livestock is. And there are things that could be better about a lot of livestock farming and some livestock farming that's exemplary. But one thing that could be improved for all of it is to eat animals from all the way around the cycle, even when they become old and tough. Let's celebrate that and use them in a certain way. I don't mean celebrate it by having a bonfire and making a cake. <laughs> I just mean, you know, respect it and, and take it as part of the holistic overview of that food production system. Here, here. And that feeds into what I was saying about slow-cooked food, right? Because often, as you say, the, the, the older animals will need a very different style of cooking from something that's kind of uh, young and, 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 and more tender, but it doesn't make them any less delicious. But kids, all of us need those skills. Yeah, yeah, 
sector. Yeah. So it is about, it's about upskilling humans in the important stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. And I think there's a whole, I think there's a whole wave of tsunami of, of that attitude rising and shifting through, um, through society here in the UK anyway, at the moment. And it's really interesting, um, that 15 years ago, that was probably quite a niche, dare I say it, white middle-class worldview. And it's totally changing. I think the realities of the new science of nutrition that seems to be finally making itself heard, um, it's beginning to show that, you know, it's diet is so important to health. It is the number one most important thing. Um, more important even than exercise, in, in my belief, um, you know, without a good solid diet you stand a chance of setting yourself up for all sorts of problems in the future and holding yourself back early in life and a great way to give people a brilliant diet is to educate them and skill them about the food that they eat oh god i sound like an old bore um but that's what we're here for <laughs> it doesn't mean you're not right though oh well there we go i have to be in trouble you're you're making me feel far too good about myself i need to be more humble so in the hopes of doing that um, I think you've changed three fantastic things about the world of food there and touched on some issues that we are familiar with in some places and some that perhaps we aren't as familiar with in others and given us some examples um, that are really, really useful and practical for, for everybody out there, whether they're familiar with any of the discussions that we're having or, or new to them. Um, hopefully that's encouraged some people to go and find out some more. Uh, it certainly reminded me that I need to get in touch with the lady from... Um, uh, from Chefs for Schools and find out what's going on over there. Um, and of course, uh, <clears throat> the other thing that we could all do is go out and buy shares in supermarkets. You could do that, or you could invest in wild market and, uh, 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 you know, take part in the rebellion. We could do both. My point is that if we if we all had shares in supermarkets, we could start telling them what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but... I'm 100% in no way wanting to take any business away from wild market. That's definitely not what I'm about. I'm really <laughs> excited to find out more about it. I've been enjoying walking through the marketplace on a Wednesday morning. I haven't actually taken the plunge yet. I think the trouble is I'm very easily digitally distracted. And once I've dropped into that marketplace, I saw that something else happens or a dog barks or a door rings or something like that. And I get distracted. But I am going to make a purchase at some point, I promise. Um, so... On the way out of this sort of sort of more kind of uh, heavyweight uh, debating uh, food politics area of the podcast, we wander into uh, a more a more sort of jaunty, lively place, which is the the fun sort of wind down to the show that you'll be familiar with, where you get to change another three or choose rather another three things. You get to choose a future guest of the Madam's Cast, um, mm. uh, be they alive, dead, real, fictitious, willing, or otherwise. You get to um, choose a food book that you couldn't be without and you have to do that. It's difficult. It's like choosing your, your favorite album, I know, but you have to choose one. And you also have to do who's, I mean, this shouldn't be too difficult, but you get to choose a drink that you would sip whilst perusing that book. It's quite a specific relationship between the book and the drink. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Yeah. Well prepared and succinct, Nick, as we've become used to in the previous minutes. What are you going to open with? What are you going to give me first? Uh, well, let's talk about the book because it actually fits into what you were just saying about the science of nutrition. Um, Kimberly Wilson has also become a hero of mine. She is uh, a psychologist with a master's in nutrition. And she's written uh, an amazing book called Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. And 
If your listeners haven't already read it or listened to it on Audible, which is what I'm doing on long journeys uh, in the car around the West Country recruiting producers, then I really, really recommend it. It is um, staggeringly well written um, and it is uh, frankly quite frightening at times, but it also gives us tools and um, kind of know-how to, to, to make things better. Uh, well, that'll be going in the world of books book cart this afternoon for the monthly order. Um, sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, ultra processed foods came up on uh, on that episode recently, again with Alison Swamperenti. Mm. And um, mm. the more I begin to, I'm going to bore everyone. There's going to be a klaxon go off in a minute because yes, I'm about to mention my new polytunnel. Um, uh, well, <laughs> I'm getting into a lot of trouble at home at the moment for banging on about it. But one of the things I've noticed immediately with access to great fresh salad at home is how much of it we're eating. And we were eating a lot of salad before, but we were buying that in the supermarket and it was quite a boring thing. We'd been getting some from a local producer as and when it was available and that was a much, much better thing. But it's really interesting how having better ingredients around drags you away from the mundane. Now, we don't eat mm. a lot of hyper-processed food. The odd bag of crisps might make it into the house. Um, but I hadn't realised how much value added brackets processed food uh, mm. composed of most people's diets or the, the national diet if you like it's a staggering quantity it's represented almost exactly by the supermarket when you walk in oh my god we've gone full circle back to the first point okay uh, when you walk into a supermarket it's amazing isn't it you walk in and they almost always got the fresh produce right in front of you the fruits and the vegetables glistening and gleaming in their worldly glory, wherever they've come from, whether they're in season or not, they're, they're there, they're looking fresh, they're looking great. And then you sort of walk past that and you're, and, and then they've got all the kind of everything else. And there's this sort of tiny, if it's a third, you're lucky. It's probably more like a, a quarter or an eighth of the shop space dedicated to fresh produce mm. and everything else, everything else, bar, half an aisle of you know spices ingredients olive oil everything else is value-added processed food right all, all kind of wrapped up in 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 plastic and brightly colored to try and kid us that there's you know something fun about it there isn't these are just aisles of depression tim <laughs> we should co-author a book the isles of depression uh, <laughs> a journey of modern poetry about the food system right maybe not Kimberly Wilson, unprocessed. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so what I will say on that is, as well is omega-3, 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 omega-3. Uh, now, we all kind of think we know about omega-3. I didn't realize until I read this book that omega-3 is central to human brain health. It's the reason, in fact, we became homo sapiens is, is by eating um, fish rich in omega-3. Um, and we stopped doing it on this country, oddly, given that we're surrounded by the things. And as a result, and figure this, brain size in babies is getting smaller. IQs are going down because we are not eating enough omega-3. Uh, yes, that's right. Omega-3, a very important, uh, am I right in saying that's an amino acid? I can't remember. Uh, but it's vital to brain development. This is why uh, they feed it to young, tiny piglets in their pig feed so that they can progress more quickly to a point where they can be weaned so they can be taken away from their mother sooner and and and, uh, and therefore um, <clears throat> farrowed again so you get more piglets in a year it's the reason that industrial fish meal uh, bane of my life that it is is everywhere 
because it's such a magic ingredient for brain development and physical development you know as a result of that it's really really interesting and uh, the problem with going on and on and on about omega-3 is that people make a couple of mistakes uh, in my opinion they make what i would consider to be a couple of ethical mistakes one is they will go out and buy some omega-3 oil um and start taking that and i think well you know you're just missing a trick because you could be eating something really nice instead of taking a capsule uh and often the capsule unless it's cod liver oil which actually comes from cod's livers which actually um, are otherwise a waste product from a fish that's already been killed. Okay, that's probably a, the best option if for a for a for a capsule. Definitely don't go and start eating capsules made of krill, uh, because why are we fishing krill? That's just insane. Uh, that came up in a previous episode with someone else as well. Um, it's great being me. I get all this knowledge, and I'm just stealing it from everyone else. Um, <clears throat> go out, but please, please, please don't eat farm salmon that says rich in omega-3 because that omega-3 comes from wild catch fish that they're feeding to the salmon go and eat some mackerel please try not to choose tuna if you can avoid it um there are allegedly some sustainable tuna stocks in the world but not many of them are making it into british supermarket tins so just watch out for that try and find your omega-3 oils from other places you know sustainable places sardines sprats mackerel herring all of that and some seeds as well contain these oils so although in much much smaller quantities and there is some argument about how nutriently available they are to you i believe uh, he said as a caveat um wow kimberly wilson unprocessed brackets omega-3 which i think you said five times <laughs> i would say it more if you let me get away with it <laughs> okay okay omega-3 i had a little mini rant there which i shouldn't have done oh my goodness the greyhound, which never moves during a podcast recording, is barking at the door. Hold on, everyone. Let me just let the greyhound out of the recording studio. Might be it's a cry for omega-3, Tim. Is, is that, do you think that's what it was? The local vole population, I think, is providing hers at the moment. Anyway, um, we've done the book. What are you going to drink whilst you're reading Kimberly Wilson's Unprocessed? So I gave this a lot of thought. Um, because uh, I enjoy a drink um, and I, I re actually really enjoy drinking lager, which is uh, an admission to make. But I haven't chosen lager, having given this a lot of thought, because I don't really think lager is a great drink, for me at least, when I'm reading. What I'm going to choose instead is something truly, truly fabulous. And it's a uh, bottle of wine produced by a chap called Robin Snowden, who runs um, a vineyard called Limeburn Hill uh, in Chew Magna, not far from where we grew up to. And um, Robin has, has uh, it's all biodynamic, as you'd expect. Uh, Robin's actually training to be a, a, a druid. He's a fascinating guy. He has made a bottle of wine um, called Salin, um, spelt Samhain, the, 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 the Celtic festival, the, the, the kind of end of harvest and beginning of winter pronounced selling it tastes i kid you not tim like an english hedgerow and i mean that in a very very positive way it's it just tastes so english this wine um it doesn't taste like it, it wants to be french or spanish or italian or anything else it tastes like an english hedgerow when all the berries are ripe it is just fabulous and i think it would be a great accompaniment to uh, to kimberly's book wow amazing is that available from you not yet, but watch this space. Oh, oh, okay. Exciting licensing conditions apply. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait uh, to, to try some. All right. Um, 
Oh, Robin Snowden. He sounds like an interesting chap as well. Maybe we want to dig him up. Okay. Um, and what's your nomination? Who would you nominate to be a future guest of Madam's Cast? Well, funnily enough, it's one of those two. So either Kimberly Wilson, who I think is fabulous and fascinating, um, uh, or Robin Snowden, who is fascinating and fabulous. Well, there we go. That was easy, wasn't it? There we go. How do you feel? You feel like you survived the Madam's Cast intact? It's it's a pleasure, Tim, and um, I, I really meant what I said at the top of the podcast. What you're doing is extraordinary, and more power to you. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, you've got a kind offer for our listenership, I believe. Yeah, 15 quid off if you want to shop with Wild Market. So um, Wild, W-Y-L-D-E dot market is the website. Um, as Tim said, we're open on a Wednesday from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., uh probably worth signing up so you get notifications and the like and you'll email from me about kind of food related matters um and if you put in the word madams double uh, m-a-double-d-a-m-s all in capitals madams into the uh voucher box on checkout that'll give you 15 quid off for your first purchase there you go fantastic um once again, the surname Madam's finding its way around the metadata of the interverse <laughs> <laughs> in suspicious ways. Fantastic. Um, Nick, what an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I hope I haven't spoken too much and we've got managed to get your, your points across. I, I was very excited to hear them and, and perhaps I've responded too strongly um, and, and stolen the show from you, but I hope not. I feel like I've been speaking too much, but um, that may have just been the coffee. Uh, what are you up to? What's next? You off to rustle up some more suppliers for your fantastic new business? Yep, we're, we're busy meeting new producers all the time. Uh, and that in itself is, um, is is just such a privilege to see people doing extraordinary things all, all over this country. Um, we just want to give them a, a, a kind of central place to uh, to sell their amazing produce to customers who care. Any spoilers? Any exciting new product that springs to mind that, that you can tell us about? I'm really excited about the natural wines. We are, as you kind of um, hinted, stuck in kind of licensing purgatory at the moment but uh when we can match beautiful natural wines with amazing artisanally produced food then you know then we'll be motoring amazing amazing well there we go nick jefferson thank you very much for joining in with the madam's cast have a safe uh, rest of your day enjoy the rest of your life i know that we'll be in touch again very soon uh, offline um and i'll um i'll put all of these things including your generous offer for the voucher scheme into the show notes and we'll get the podcast live just as soon as you get to the end of the queue tim thank you so much really has been an absolute pleasure cheers matey all the best bye-bye thanks bye